Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here as always with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so uh, this week you've had some time and um, stories that you already read last week in some ways, but just in Isaiah. And then we walk through Kings, Chronicles and start uh, Zephaniah. And so uh, we hear once again, Hezekiah is sick. Uh, Isaiah mm-hmm. tells him it's going to be over and Hezekiah prays. God remembers him. Hezekiah gets more years onto his life. And so, yeah, uh, I think Hezekiah um, seems genuinely concerned about uh, Sheol, this place of the dead, and um, he's he's desiring for just a length on his on his years. And um, he responds in song. He responds by being thankful, and um, and so, yeah. I think something that Chris and I were discussing off the podcast is just this idea of it's, I don't know, I was kind of struggling with Hezekiah asking for a length of life the same week that we read in Philippians 121 of Paul saying like, it's it's better to die, to die is gain. And Chris uh, made a really good point that the idea of afterlife and heaven and being with God is different for us when we have the full understanding of Christ and the Messiah. So an extension of life isn't necessarily a wrong thing to ask, but we also will approach suffering and death differently as people on this side of the Christ death and resurrection than we would before that. Yeah. Sometimes we don't think about it, but that, um, the idea of like a bodily resurrection comes kind of later in the, in the old Testament. Um, and, and not that, people weren't saved by faith in Yahweh, but, uh, the clarity around exactly what happens, uh, post death was just not there. I mean, there's a reason why groups like Sadducees exist and have their own theology. It's because, um, of that struggle of not always having the clarity of exactly what happens because that that's not the most essential thing as part of, uh, following and trusting in, in God. Uh, and so, um, yeah. So at this point, what does Hezekiah know? And what does he not know? Um, not only that, but like we, we'll even see next week with Josiah. We don't even know how much of the law they really had. And so um, clarity on, on some of those things was not there. So for Hezekiah to ask him for it, he might be just asking uh, of what he knows versus a post-Jesus resurrected uh, life where um, th- there has been the rubber stamp confirmation of a, of a resurrected life that Paul has seen. Um, and so uh, that's a very different position to be in. Yeah. And so, uh, once again, Hezekiah decides to show these Babylonians around, uh, show all the stuff he has in the kingdom. And I, I don't, uh, there's a little bit of me that just bugs me about Hezekiah's sort of like callousness where it's like Isaiah's asking about it and <laughs> Hezekiah's still just like, you know what, I'm going to be dead when they finally show up here. So, uh, that's okay. Yeah, I think the last two stories that we've read about Hezekiah seem very self-seeking, him wanting to extend his life and really not caring about Israel's future because it won't impact him directly. Um, and, and yet Hezekiah is considered to be one of the best Kings of Israel. And I think what that is meant to show us is that he is still completely insufficient to rule God's people faithfully. And it points us to our need for a better and more perfect ruler, which of course we have in Jesus Christ. And where he might've been the best King of Israel, he does not seem like he was the best dad of his child. And so, um, he has a son named Manasseh and wow, we, we got a good run of one King, uh, but we're back to the chaos. And in a lot of ways, Manasseh feels like the most 
northern-ish king in the southern mm-hmm. kingdom. Um, I mean, there's plenty of high places and idolatry. There's even child sacrifice, mediums, astral worship, all the stuff that just was so marked by the northern kingdom is is very marked by Manasseh here. Yeah, and I think the author here of, of Kings is really intentional about referencing Moses's instruction and laws around Israel's disobedience. And so, and I think the author's intention is to show us that what is coming, this coming wrath and judgment, it's not God's random decision. It is what Israel had brought upon themselves and they knew it was going to happen because of the instruction that they got generations ago. Yeah. And, and if you wanted a reason to connect Manasseh to the kind of kings in the Northern Kingdom, God will even come along and go, look, the same alignment measurement, the, the plumb line I used for Ahab, I'm, I'm using for you, Manasseh, mm-hmm. and your company. And the verdict is the same as Ahab. Yeah. And so uh, Amon, uh, the next king in line, comes through, and he's really not that much different. He reigns for about two years, and ultimately uh, he's so not loved that people around him end up uh, conspiring to kill him. Right. And Josiah's made king, but we'll get to Josiah as we go. Second Chronicles. Um, and so uh, Manasseh's reigning in Judah, similar as before. Uh, we do get a reference uh, specifically to the Valley of Ben-Himon here, uh, which in Aramaic is actually Gehenna. Uh, this is a word that Jesus uses for hell. So by uh, at some time, uh, some of these child sacrifices are happening. And there was actually a story already in Chronicles about child sacrifice happening here. And so um, you have some of the worst atrocities in Israel's history happening in this valley. And over time, it starts becoming symbolic of this idea of punishment and judgment and suffering. And so, um, yeah, so this is sort of one of the birthplaces of the idea of the word Gehenna that we often translate as hell in the New Testament. Which is interesting and that it comes up at the same time as we have one of Judah's most wicked kings. Yep. But... He repents, Which is crazy. <laughs> at least in Chronicles. Uh, it's a story we certainly don't have in Kings. It's like recorded in this book of seers that we don't have uh, in our Bible or uh, have actually found in history. And so not that it didn't exist. We just don't have a copy of it. And so um, Manasseh, after everything that goes so far south and he's captured, he pleads with God and God hears him and he actually does become repentant. And there seems to be a le- legitimate change in life. He brings back sort of reforms to, to bring back Yahweh worship. Yeah, it just shows how amazing and really unfathomable God's mercy is. Um, Sometimes I feel like my sin is too much for God to handle or forgive, and yet you look at at the forgiveness that he extended to Manasseh, and we can remember how great his mercy is. And as Amon, once again, follows the old ways of idolatry, and everyone dislikes him. The Mm -hmm. end. And so we uh, we get to Zephaniah. Um, Do you want to say anything about the start here? Yeah, so Zephaniah prophesied during the reign of Josiah the king, which we'll read a little bit more about next week. And there's a strong theme here of the day of the Lord. And we've talked about this before because it's come up in the other prophets, but we can read this as kind of a both and looking toward the final judgment, the final day of the Lord, which we would call the day of the Lord. And we can also look at uh, the judgment and the exile that's coming on from Babylon, which would be like a day of the Lord. So it'll go a little bit back and forth with that. Um, And I think it's worth noting that Zephaniah's name means Yahweh has hidden. Yeah, definitely. And and um, I think even in that name, there's sort of hints in this book, like Yahweh hasn't abandoned, Yahweh hasn't moved on, but right now he's hidden. And um, and so we get sort of the, uh, it's funny that we kind of cut off where we do in this opening because it, yeah. we get kind of the, the, the harshest parts of the book, which is yeah. sort of starting out with all the accusation against Judah and specifically against even the leadership, their adaptation of sort of Moloch worship. And just to remember Moloch worship, uh, when it comes to child sacrifice and stuff like that, Moloch worship was like, the most 
most mature version of that. That's sort of um, the, they, the, all the all the sort of Baal worship of the Phoenicians, all the coastal people, um, it really got organized and it really became the worst version of itself um, during the sort of Molech worship of mm. um, how they sacrifice children and all this other stuff. And so um, there's a reason why God is really frustrated with Israel at this point. And so, yeah. Yeah. And then the day of the Lord uh, is near the, the sort of next area of, of this idol worship. And, and not only that, but the unjust practices that probably accompany idol worship of um, they're taking wealth by deceit and all this kind of stuff that, that God's coming and is going to have a judgment for them. They're going to end up place, uh, end up in places where they, they build homes, but they don't get to live in them. They plant vineyards and they don't get to enjoy them. And um, which is often what happens when you end up under somebody else's empire. And so um, just because Hezekiah saved the day pretty recently, don't think that the day of Lord's not just around the corner. And, um, and, and I think it's a reminder to the people of like, look, like you need to wake up. Uh, and, and we get a little bit of a break here. Um, um, though it should flow right into the next chapter where Hezekiah calls them, uh, to, to, to turn, but we're kind of left with the cliffhanger at the end of the reading today. Yeah. I like the way Zephaniah emphasizes the control here. And, you know, I think sometimes we think we have control or we can bring about or prevent certain things, but this passage really emphasizes the sovereignty of God and his control and how when he wills, things are going to happen. Nothing is going to deliver these people, not wealth, not personal judgments. The only deliverance that can be found is from God. Yep. All right, let's jump to Ephesians. And so um, once again, it's just sometimes week breaks just come at weird places. So we're coming right off of last week, the uh, instructions around uh, households, which was also coming right off of the the putting on the new self, start living this new way of living. Um, and, and that it does include some some individualistic things that, that are actually talked about early on right after that, but also how households work and how um, in, in, in sort of workplaces in some ways uh, work though certainly in, in language that we don't we don't use currently and so uh, we talked about marriage last week and now we're getting into children and parents and showcasing this new humanity and and still the principle of how um, maybe the one sometimes with either power or authority or privilege or responsibility how they how they utilize that to love the other and how the one sometimes that falls under responsibility or under um, those who have power or authority, how they respond to that. And so we certainly get that with the children and parents that um, they would have children that would seek to honor uh, the parents in that role for the person who takes responsibility for them and, and, and instructions to fathers to, to actually not provoke your children. Don't, don't, don't be a father in such a way that you're frustrating your children and making them so angry, uh, but ultimately in a way that loves them. Yeah. And for us as parents, those of us who are parents or who anticipate becoming parents one of the reminders here is that we don't ever have to wonder or ask if we should be investing or discipling our kids that is something that we never have to wonder about or pray about or seek discernment on that is always a call and an invitation for us yeah and and once again some of the same principles really do apply to that next section where um it's sort of like masters those those who have bond servants or um and and sometimes we got to be really cautious to apply um to not apply American version of um, sort of chattel slavery into uh, sort of some of the practices in the ancient world, uh, which is really like when people are in your debt, they can become your servant, stuff like that. And so um, it, it's just a very different setup in, in sort of the culture. I'm not saying it's all right. And there's some, some ways that we've, reformed and moved past some of these practices, but um, it certainly wasn't as, um, uh, 
image of God destroying as uh, some of the ways that America slavery functioned. And, and so the instruction here around masters is, is to, to, to think that way to begin with that God, the, the God we have shows no partiality. So there's, there's not something that makes you as a master versus a bond servant any better. So coming from that, almost that Imago Dei idea of like, God doesn't ultimately show partiality. So you're not better off master as your slave person. So ultimately still honor them and, and bond servants, like no matter who your master is, you should work desiring sort of on, unto the Lord as if, um, whatever labor you have and whatever master you have, ultimately your master is the Lord and work that way. Yeah. I think there's an empowerment in submission there as well. If I am choosing under the authority of God to submit to leadership from another, then I am empowered in that versus being forced into it. And I can do tasks or manage things that I don't uh, maybe enjoy or feel unvalued for and still find peace and joy in that because I have chosen by the grace of God to submit to that and then to work to the Lord instead of for someone else's accolades. And, and it gives purpose to every work area. Yeah. I was just listening to a podcast. And I wish I could remember who it was. Um, and, and they were ultimately quoting somebody, some old dead author, but uh, around Christianity being one of the only faith systems that, that, would bring value even to the lowliest of jobs. Mm. And, um, and so uh, no matter what job you have, like there can be value, whether you're a shoemaker, a book binder, there's some of those great stories in history of like some faithful, faithful, um, believers who have had some of the most mundane jobs. And they talk about how, uh, even in those jobs, like they feel like they can honor the Lord. And so, um, if you're in a lab or, uh, you're in, in a, retail job or something like that, that there's still ways to, to view your work as, uh, unto the Lord. Yeah. And a ministry task. Yeah. And so, uh, and then coming right off of that, uh, which I think the context here still continues to matter. It's like all the ways that Paul's really calling his people to live very different than sort of the regular Ro- Greco Roman culture, um, that, that this is going to be a battle this new way of life, this putting on the new self that's very different than those around you, like prepare yourself for that. And and the battle is not a physical battle. It's a spiritual one. And, and there's going to be forces that are going to work against you. And it might play out in how people persecute you. And it might just play out by lies that you start believing in your brain and things like that. And so um, Paul speaks of putting on this armor. And it's fascinating because he, he lifts pretty much every piece of this armor from Isaiah. You have all these different things about the Messiah who's coming from Isaiah, who has all of these different pieces of armor. And so I think this is so rich. It's almost as if Paul is saying, all right, you need to look like your Messiah, like metaphorically, like Paul's telling them, look like Jesus, live like Jesus, put on Jesus. And, and, and he does that also encouraging them through prayer and perseverance in the spirit and knowing his word. So you, so almost like Paul saying, you want to fight evil forces, become more like Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the key verse in this passage around the armor of God is verse 10. It says, be strong in the Lord and in his might. It's not about me becoming stronger or more powerful. Powerful, but me becoming weaker and the Lord becoming stronger in and through me. And uh, it's not complicated. It it starts and ends with prayer and with knowing God's word and submitting yourself to it and under it. And then Paul wraps up. He's going to send Tychicus uh, and he closes once again with encouragement for this group. It's actually a pretty positive letter uh, similar to Philippians. Yeah. And so any final thoughts uh, as you've read through Ephesians now this time? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd like to jump. 
once we're done doing this podcast, I'd, this is probably one of the books I would put in near the top of my list of that I want to spend some real significant time studying in depth more than I have before. But especially with this theme of Ephesians, I've just been thinking more about the spiritual battle and the spiritual realm recently. And I love how Paul moves in and out of this concept in the book of Ephesians. One of the commentators I looked at for this book talked about the heavenly realm kind of being like radio raves, and we just kind of need to tune into it to really know what's going on. But along with this, we see these themes of unity in the body and the necessity of unity in order to fight this cosmic spiritual battle against the enemy. And when we really understand that our true enemy is Satan, we are going to approach conflict and sin in our world as fighting Satan, not not the people necessarily that he is using to do his work. Yeah. And I really, I mean, this is one of the most organized in some ways letters for Paul, uh, sort of the setup and introduction of the gospel leading to the unity of the church, leading to sort of new ways of, of living the sort of new self. And, um, I appreciate it. I think sometimes we lose the power of the letter by reading too individualistically into the letter mm-hmm. that, uh, there's so much of a, of a sort of larger church understanding of this, which I love, but, um, but I also appreciate sort of that tail end where Paul's like, okay, like, your marriage and your parenting and your workplace and all that, like there's a spiritual battle in all those things and, and you need to be ready for it. And, and, um, to not, um, sometimes spiritual battle and warfare and all that. It's not necessarily about, um, trying to bring the gospel to a secular world. Sometimes it's about, um, loving your spouse well and, um, and, and being aware of that. Yeah. And so we jump into Philippians, which is another prison epistle. So Paul's getting some letters done while he's stuck here in Rome. Uh, and it's a city, uh, just a reminder, it's a city he did not spend a ton of time in, but it is one of his first cities. And um, he, he has a few people uh, become converted that are like so unrelated to each other. Um, not only like do they not know each other, but they're like from very different walks of life, whether it was like a Roman jailer, whether it was um, this this woman who um has purple cloth and, and a business or uh, this little demon possessed girl. And so um, you have all these random stories of the city that doesn't have a synagogue. There's not even like the organizational structures that Paul could have relied on uh, that in, in other cities. And so um, yet this church has taken off, which I think brings about why he is just so happy about it. Yeah. There's definitely strong themes of joy and partnership in this book of Philippians. And Paul's writing with Timothy at the time, so we do find out Timothy is in Rome with Paul at the moment, though it sounds like Paul wants to send him out by the end of this letter. And so, um, yeah, Paul has been a, or Timothy's been a traveling companion uh, with Paul for, for at least the second missionary journey, uh, and now he's ended up with Rome in Rome with him. Yeah. And so it opens with this Thanksgiving, and it's just such a beautiful mix between praise and sort of these moments of encouragement uh, that God has started this work and God has continued this work. Like I said, once again, Paul wasn't around for a lot of this. I don't even know how much of, a, of leadership he really even had a chance to set up, uh, but he's sort of noticing. But that's okay because God has done his work, and and um, we it's just kind of Paul being like, yes, God, God has done this. They have heard the good news. They've continued, and it's good news for him. Yeah, Paul makes it really clear in this prayer and celebration that the source of a holy and blameless life begins with love, and that love is expressed through knowledge and discernment. So we cannot expect to be like Christ with knowledge alone, but we have to be filled with the love of Christ. Yep. Uh, and, the, and the gospel keeps moving forward. I, I kind of mm-hmm. love Paul pointing this out. He's kind of like, you know what? They threw me in prison uh, thinking that they're going to kind of 
quench the the spread of the gospel, but it's had the opposite consequences. And all these sort of non-believers have, have had their interest peaked in the gospel. And the believers in Rome are now that much more confident in their faith because of my imprisonment. And so um, I, I kind of, Paul, Paul always has a way to spin everything and it's so good. I don't think, I mean, I don't think he's wrongly spinning it, but like it's, it's, there's always like, yeah, they did this, but, and and there's always like the, the positive side of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What if Paul's imprisonment wasn't for him, but was for others to come to Christ? And it caused me to reflect back. Am I willing to embrace and receive suffering, even extended suffering that the gospel may go forth? That's hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around, I think, in our culture. But God is good to us, even in the midst of suffering. But the call to come and die may mean that we will be used by him for other salvation, even in suffering. Yeah. And then, and then Paul points out, like, yeah, he has such joy in this point. And in the midst of imprisonment, he, he's even going forth, you know what, whether I live or die, I'm fine with that too. And if I live, then great, I have more ministry to do with you. Uh, I get to tell more people about Christ. I get to, to, to be sort of Christ's presence in this role. And if I die, that's still gain too. And mm-hmm. um, either way, he He's, he's sort of good and, and he calls people to live this life worthy of the gospel, which I think really takes us into chapter two in a moment. And um, that this life, whatever uh, this life really worthy of the gospel would be, that others would would see their own sin, their own selfishness, whatever it is in their lives uh, and their own destruction compared to, to how uh, people living a life worthy of the gospel might be. That's a beautiful picture of what submission to God looks like for Paul. He really does believe that dying and being with Jesus is far by better, but much better. But he's willing to remain on earth in order to see others progress and grow in the faith in the churches he's planted. And this should be what we aim for as believers as well. Exiles, which is what we are, should always long for home and suffering is granted by God. And then Paul moves into what is one of the more famous passages out of this book, and that's um, sort of the the example of Christ's humility. So uh, if, if we are to live a life worthy of the gospel, it's, it's to live like Christ, to put on this example of humility, that we should have that mind in us, the one that laid aside power and privilege to become human and even more a servant. And the cross ends up being this true sort of humbling for Jesus, and yet God would raise him up and every knee would bow. And it's interesting in this section um, – there's not a lot of talk about atonement and blood and sin. Yeah, Paul's kind of still working, it, I think, in the gospel um, in sort of uh, a different sort of metaphor way uh, to call people uh, to, to live uh, ultimately like that part of the gospel. Um, and, and there's communal nature to these instructions, too, mm-hmm. that they would operate in a way that they're seeking the good of others. They're serving others. They're being humble towards others. And so um, in so doing, uh, tell the story of Christ who uh, was willing to be a servant. Right. It's not wrong for us to read it individually because there's a lot of individual opportunities for us to treat others better than ourselves. But when you see all of that on display within the church, that's when we see the unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17. That's when God is glorified through us being one body, when we are considering others better than ourselves and looking to the interests of others before we look to our own interests. So Paul just keeps telling him, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, you're doing great. Even in his absence, keep working it out. And, um, and, and he even points out, and guess what's even better? God's doing it in you. This is for his good pleasure. And what a, what a tremendous thing sometimes to, to hear. Uh, sometimes it's the idea that like God is pleased to be working through and in you and no matter what the mess is. And, 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 um, that, that is for his pleasure and ultimately for your pleasure or joy too. Um, that, that he continues to do works through his people. 
Paul in this section makes a direct connection with shining like lights in the world and not grumbling or disputing or arguing. And the posture of our hearts and our language or our tweets or our gifts are going to impact the way we impact the world around us. So I was convicted around it. And I wonder if you were as well. Where are you tempted to complain or to argue, whether to even to connect just with someone over sarcasm or truly complain about things that we shouldn't be complaining about? Yep. Uh, Proverbs 3, at least the second half of it. Yeah, I mean, don't worry. When God is your wisdom and discretion, when he is your confidence, you don't have to be afraid. Yeah, yeah and there's there's encouragement from this letter. So for the Lord will be at your side, um, will keep your foot from being snared and have no fear of sudden disaster. And so um, there's definitely some words of encouragement for the 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 listener of the proverb and then Psalm 138. I think this is a really neat connection to Ephesians six. When the psalmist prays, I give you thanks. O Lord, with my whole heart before the gods, I sing your praise. This is active spiritual warfare. We're reading about in Psalm 138. When we are praising and thanking God in all circumstances and before the powers and principalities of this dark world, things change in the spirit and move in the spirit when we worship as warfare. Yeah. The theme of thankfulness is certainly all over this. And I think the psalmist uses the word thanks like 10 times it's a bunch of times and um and so uh it's it's still central and i think it's similar to philippians the sort of sort of attitude of thankfulness that marks and joy that marks that mm-hmm. letter uh, is similar here and no matter what the circumstances so next week what should we look for so Zephaniah, like Chris mentioned, where we ended it, ends kind of dark, but it it gets a little bit brighter throughout the whole thing. So just kind of pay attention to the themes and the hope that we read throughout the whole thing. And then in the New Testament, since we're reading through all of Philippians, I'd really encourage you to read that passage, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, in the context of what else Paul is talking about. So try to read it with new eyes or new understanding this time. Yeah. It may not be about winning a football game. Uh, so, uh, and then the old Testament. Yeah. Uh, you, I hope you will notice some parallels to, to when Zephaniah starts talking about the nations, how, um, there's some parallels to maybe how Amos wrote his book and, uh, what do you think Zephaniah might be doing when talking about that? Um, and then in Philippians, this is not the most systematic book when it comes to theology. There's not, um, necessarily this robust heady kind of stuff. But yet Paul still finds a way to sort of present this picture of like righteousness by the law versus righteousness that comes through Christ. And there's sort of a humble brag that he kind of works in. So take notice of that as he sort of uh, tells um, about, I, I think, what is one of Paul's most deep statements about his affections towards Jesus. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so we'll hear from you next week or you'll hear from us next week, really. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you.